Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. If you're just joining us for the first time, that's okay, because this is technically only the second episode. If you're wondering what this show is, well, let's put it this way. We are a podcast that celebrates horror movies celebrating anniversaries. And not just any small anniversaries like you might have seen on the internet in the last month. People saying, hey, Top Gun turned 32 years old. No, 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 no. We're hitting the tens. So 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, going way, 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 way back. That's what we're going to be covering. And this is just a lively discussion with people who love these movies. There's sometimes going to be podcasters. Sometimes they'll be writers. Sometimes they'll be people who work on movies themselves. We just want people who are passionate about horror movies and love specific movies. Now, there's going to be plenty of times that you're going to get the larger films, like this year, for example, there are three different Halloween movies that are going to be celebrating different anniversaries. At the same time, you've got Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers that's also celebrating an anniversary. That's the disparity between the different movies we're going to be covering, but they all deserve love and attention. And if you know anything about horror, they all have their Arctic fans. Specifically, tonight we're going to be talking about 1978's Magic, starring one Anthony Hopkins. And when you think about Magic, or you try to picture in your mind this film, the first image that comes to mind is, of course, Fats. The crazy, or, or at least very, very, very creepy, ventriloquist dummy. Now, what's special about Fats is... Okay. The second episode, so, you know, we're... We're trying to work things out with the guests. We're going to get them to eventually understand that I've got to set up the basic plot of the movie and then they'll come on. But without further ado, I would like to welcome on tonight's guest from the Corpse Club and the senior columnist from Daily Dead, Mr. Scott Drebbit. How are you doing tonight, Scott? Hey, Adrian. Thanks for hearing me. I heard we're doing uh, Texas uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Is that right? If you're going to make the joke, you got to get the title right at least. <laughs> It's just like I, I tried to remember the um, Slime bowl Orama, the full title right? of that, but I couldn't remember it. So I'm like, no, that's not the joke I'm going to go for. I'm not going to ruin things in like minute two or three. <laughs> uh, My apologies. It's okay. It's okay. You are here and you were very emphatic when it came to this movie, first of all. Magic is one that I saw... I actually saw it when it came out uh, in the theaters in 78. I was a wee lad of eight years old. Well, that, that's perfect because that was actually my first question I was going to ask you. So we, we are off to a great start. Now, is it something that you like you were taken to this movie or was it something at eight years old that you identified, I want to try to see this movie? It was the latter because uh, as some people may or may not know, Magic uh, was initially known and is still known to this day for an absolutely terrifying uh, advertising campaign through uh, television. There's a 30-second commercial uh, where the camera pans in on uh, Fats, the dummy, the dummy that uh, um, Corky Withers, the character played by Anthony Hopkins, um, uses and where he recites this poem and that's the whole commercial is fats the dummy reciting the commercial to this to the camera 
And when that commercial came out, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know that in the States, in New York, for instance, that it was pulled, I believe, after one showing because parents were phoning in to the uh, TV station saying, what the hell is this? You are terrifying our children. Now, up here in Canada, I first saw the commercial. I was uh, at home with my mom, and it came on during daytime television during when she was watching her soap operas. And so I'm sitting there, and I see this commercial come on, and I was completely riveted the first time I saw it, and immediately my blood chilled. Jeez. Now, here's the thing. It didn't just show once. It played for like a month. It sure felt like a month. I know I saw it at least eight times. And every time, and it's such a sudden commercial mm -hmm. that just, like, he's there as soon as the camera, as soon as uh, the screen comes up, he's there. And as soon as he would show up on the screen, I would bolt from the room every time. <laughs> well, and, the, and the, cre the creepy thing about it is that he, he recites the the little poem, which actually, if you're watching it after you see the movie, it actually kind of spoils the entire film. Uh, he, yep then rolls his eyes back into his head and they focus on the the whites of the underneath of his eyes while they have the guy um you know saying the tagline and then going to the end of it so like you you're forced to watch the lifeless eyes of the uh, mm -hmm. ventriloquist dummy for like a second or two oh no it was completely horrifying but <laughs> as a budding as a budding horror nerd um, at that time, I mean, the first one, the first horror movie I saw in the theater, my mom took me when I was six to see uh, Burnt Offerings. Um, yeah, and I was hooked right from there. And then in 78, and well, I would have seen Magic before, but I saw Halloween later on that year mm -hmm. in 78 with my older brother who was uh, babysitting me. And he, we went to the theater, and it had already been on for about 15 minutes, but he begged the theater manager saying we were locked out of the house. <laughs> could, we, could we go in to see the, the movie? My brother was 14, and I was 8. Um, so that was terrifying. So somewhere in between there, I already had the horror blood in me. And, and even though I was absolutely terrified by this commercial, I wanted to see the movie. Yeah. Well, I, plus, at the same time, it sounds like you got – the the classier upbringing when, when it came to horror like <laughs> the the ones that you're mentioning it's not like one of my first experiences with a horror movie was the first puppet master film so it's okay. not it's, it's not on the same level of oh yeah i had these classy horror movies that had a little bit more sophistication to it well i mean i was fortunate i think um i and lucky i was just lucky right i, I came up in uh, in the time with some parents who were pretty liberal when it came to that kind of stuff and everything but sex, right? They were okay with everything. They were okay with beheadings and everything, but copulation is like off the table, right? Oh, no. There's no time for that. Um, so I, I was just lucky. I was lucky that I came up in an age where I had the opportunity, um, you know, to, and it just ha so happened that those were the movies that I was fortunate to be able to see through just the perfect mixture of timing and and coincidence and and uh and what have you so i don't think it matters whether it's a puppet master or whether it's a, a halloween you know once once you got that horror hooked into you then you can go backwards and forwards and and start exploring you know yeah for for magic for the people who 
are, you know, uninitiated and as few words as possible try to describe magic. Magic is a simple story about a boy, a girl, and his dummy. And the girl kind of gets pushed out of the way due to some uh, issues with the boy. Perfect. Short, simple, <laughs> succinct, and, and, and it's honest at the same time. Um, because this is a, sh- a, a show just in general where people are, are talking about movies that they're passionate about and that they know usually backwards and forwards, we are going to get into spoiler territory. And for a movie like Magic, what sets it apart and what makes it special, especially as you're getting into the last act, you have to be able to dive into spoiler territory. So I just wanted to point that out here, that if you're continuing on from this point, we're going to be discussing the movie as a whole. Um, First thing that I want to start off asking about is, what do you think helps account for Magic's longevity? Because it's celebrating its 40th anniversary, and you mentioned on Twitter that you were watching this movie for research, and you had a whole bunch of people who were coming out and either retweeting it or telling you how much they love their, their movie. So th- there's certainly a following for this film. There definitely is. It's uh, When it came out, I think it cost around $7 million and it brought back uh, nearly $24 million. So it was successful, but... Um, You know, it certainly got eclipsed by, you know, a couple bigger movies as far as horror goes in uh, 78 with uh, Halloween and uh, Dawn of the Dead. So when people think of 1978, those are kind of the ones that immediately pop into people's minds. Plus, it's not, I mean, I consider it horror, um, and I know many people consider it horror. But there's certainly a case for it to be made as, you know, a psychological thriller because it's very much so. But there's enough, there's more than enough, uh, you know, creepiness in it mm-hmm. to qualify it as horror, I believe. And I think the longevity has to go to, at the end of the day, it's just very well directed and very well acted by a small troupe. Of people, it's almost like a chamber piece. This movie, um, which was quite different for Richard Chamberlain, because you know he's he's Mister Big, uh, epic war war epics and uh, like Gandhi and A Bridge Too Far and and uh, you know movies where he you know spared no expense, and um, so to see him do something like this in his filmography it stands out in that respect i think as well but i think the longevity is just the writing is so good by william goldman yeah and and the story is is so simple and direct that there isn't a lot of uh minutiae around it that can clutter up or or age it or or make it seem uh you know out of time it's very much it could it could take place uh, you know, yesterday, as yeah. opposed to 1978. I, I, I'm, I'm going to help you out for a second because uh, we were talking. You were talking for a second about Richard Attenborough. Um, the only reason I wanted to say that is because it, it would have probably been different if Richard Chamberlain did it. So, 
Did I say Richard Chamberlain? You, you did, but it's okay because for a second I'm like, what? Well, what if the actor from Thornbirds had, had directed this movie? That oh would be my god! I can a step right. back in in your career, so I, I appreciate that. But no, but it, you bring up a really good point with Richard Attenborough with the fact that he had done um, several war movies, and he actually, of course, had worked with uh, Anthony Hopkins right before this. What I find interesting about Magic is that he does magic just so he can secure the funding. For Gandhi, and they're they're two movies that are both have this very classic touch to them, but they're so they're completely polar opposites. And to do something like um, what's it called a bridge too far, and then do yeah. magic, and then go on to Gandhi, um, you might see magic as the one that you're that's the throwaway piece, but it actually helps cement what a good director he is because all three of those films shouldn't be really good like one of them should be off in there and the fact that magic is as strongly directed as the two other movies he does more so just beats beefs up his credibility it does and it you know it's it's a great calling card for um his ability as a director with actors i think especially and as well as flexing some um some different kinds of muscles that normally aren't in his films like uh, suspense mm -hmm. you know there's there's some scenes in in uh, magic that are as well orchestrated suspense wise and that's certainly you know you know helped immeasurably by william goldman's screenplay and uh, and jerry uh goldsmith's score which is you know next level oh fantastic the, the, it's so it's so great the the score is great because if i was to try to explain uh, to somebody like if somebody's like explain tell me what the score sounds like i'd say okay take a couple pinches of star trek the motion picture take a couple pinches of uh, the omen soundtrack and then mix in terms of endearment <laughs> that sure yeah well jerry gold he's so you know he's so eccentric except uh, excuse me he is so eccentric of a composer because there are there are oh i mean and he's he had so many films of course that he scored but if you look at someone like john williams there's a lot of similar themes and i and i adore john williams i mean yeah. he's he's a legend but there's a lot of similar themes that that come up through john williams uh films even in the different um you know, tent poles that he's done, the different ones that he's done. There's similar, a similar style. Yeah. A goldsmith, uh, completely adapts to the material and offers something different, you know, almost every single time. This to me sounds like if Bob Dylan was trying to like score, uh, a carnival. <laughs> yes. Cause it, do, it does have the weird kind of tinkly beat bits here and there and like the weird instruments that are in there but it just adds to the mood and, and that wheezy harmonica uh, that comes in it's so good and, but the impressive thing about jerry gold goldsmith and he actually uses elements of both of those these future movies in this score is that he not only goes on and does rudy of course but he also took the time out of his career to do the psycho 2 score right and that's it, it, that's kind of the level that you're working on with magic. But as you said, all these elements go together. And the cast, of course, everybody talks about Anthony Hopkins. And everybody will mention Burgess Meredith. 
And then some people who are a little bit more astute will mention, you know, Anne Margaret, who is absolutely phenomenal and keeps the film afloat when you like you worry that it's going to sag. But then you also have the small little pieces like David Ogden Steers showing yeah. up at the beginning. Yeah, yeah as Toddson, as as the network uh, executive, yeah, exactly. talent agent, yeah. And then why yeah. am I um, uh, Art? What's the the guy who plays Duke? Who I, oh Ed Ed Louder Ed Louder who in the movie looks like he should be Randy Quaid's other brother who is Sam. <laughs> Ed Lauder is as long as films have been made. Ed Lauder has been in them, right? Doesn't yes. it seem like that? Yes. Throughout my throughout my existence, anyway, I he can so throw much, a pin. He has so much hair here, though. That's what threw me off. It is, and the beard, right? It, it's. Yeah. But as soon as you hear that voice, you're like, oh yes, of course. Okay. You're gonna yell at somebody in about thirty <laughs> seconds. But you know, I mean, for instance, seeing this as a kid, and, and here's the thing. Full disclosure, when I first saw this when I was eight, um, I was expecting or hoping to get the movie from uh, the TV commercial, right? <laughs> and I think a lot, I think there were a lot of people uh, who were as well. But like I said, I was already hooked on horror. And if this thing was scaring me out of the room, I wanted to see what it could do when I'm sitting there in front of a, you know, a 50-foot screen. Yeah. And what I got was... I mean, I I liked it, but it wasn't the movie that I was expecting. And to me, it played just as this kind of drama with some suspense um, moments in it. I mean, the same year, the the same year, my parents, uh, I went with my parents to see the Hunter. <laughs> you know, just to give you an idea. But this was this was at a time when you just went to the movies. Like I, you know, this was small town. Um, Saskatchewan in uh, up here, and uh, you just went to the movies. It didn't matter usually what was playing. You just you know went to the movies because there was one movie showing single screen, right? So you went. So Magic played as this you know this drama with some suspense beats, and you know watching it now and having a greater appreciation of what they were going for, I can appreciate the commercial for what it is separate from what the you know the finished film is yeah and Attenborough sets it up perfectly early on um in which you the movie jumps and, and i'll talk about that in just a second but you have burgess meredith sit, sitting there talking to david ogden steers and anthony hopkins starts his magic routine and everything and they get david ogden steers talking about how you can't do things with magic on the screen because everybody can, you know, kind of, they're in on it. And yeah. Burgess Meredith mentions that it's because there's no misdirection. And then he goes and he grabs fats and he has it. And he goes, that's the misdirection. And that's kind of, I think, the whole thing about the movie is everybody is going in being like, oh, it's the murderous, you know, ventriloquist dummy film. But then you sit down and you watch it. And the first, like, 20, 30 minutes are just in impeccably and artfully done because he you see him come back in the very first scene and he's there talking to Merlin and telling him how everything went and they're cutting to what are technically flashbacks and showing that evening yeah. and then at the end of the scene it then jumps ahead two years and then directly after that scene 
they jump ahead another six months. And then after that, they jump ahead another year. And then he's going, uh, when he goes back home and they've got the flashbacks and that it's not, everything's moving in a linear fashion like you would expect, but the way that it's structured isn't how a traditional movie moves along, but none of it like is beat over your head. There's never a point where you don't like it. It's done in a way that eases the audience into it and you end up just going along for the ride. Yeah. And, um, I did a, I did a, uh, one of my columns at, uh, at uh, daily dead driving dust offs. I did a dust off on magic and, uh, in it, I mention that it's it's very I, I find it I find it subtle the way they imply that at the start that Anthony Hopkins is not quite right, mm-hmm. um, and then the, you know the card is flipped when he has to take a medical test for him to get uh, a pilot for. Uh, a magic special through NBC. They, he has to do a psychological and a medical evaluation before they'll sign the insurance papers to let him do this show. And he completely box at it. And so they're setting the stage for, uh, you know, what's going to happen later and, and his further deterioration. But it's, it's set, it's set up in such a way, I find that's so fascinating that it's not, he, the thing is, Corky knows um, this isn't a discovery yeah. piece. Corky knows that there's something wrong with him. He may not be able to label it, and it's been, you know, in every piece I've seen, it's been labeled everything from multiple personality disorder to schizophrenia, etc. And I don't think that's the point of the story. It's the point is, is that this is a guy who's already on a slippery slope, mm-hmm. um, who's just trying to hold on to reality. And he's a good guy. Like he's a good kind man. You see that with Merlin. He's, he's a nurturer. Uh, he cares about Ben. He cares about, uh, Merlin and he's on that slippery slope though. And when the card is forced on him to do the test is when, things really start to go sideways for him. And I think it, and then it shifts into that second act uh, where he meets the lovely Peggy, his old high school flame. Which is, of course, played by the great Anne Margaret, who does so much work with what on like the service level feels like it's so little, but she makes it a very emotional performance. And, while you see flashbacks of Anthony Hopkins when he's younger, you never get that perspective really of Peggy. So she's laying everything out there. You're learning basically about her entire life and just the, the way that she's reacting to certain things that he says. And it's, it, it shows a lot for not only just her range, but how willing she is to, to jump into this character that, and so many times when it comes to like psychological horror or psychological thriller, that these characters aren't really given that type of agency. They're just kind of there to be like almost a prize in a way, which she even mentions at one point in the film, but that's the way the film treats them. And it's different because that's how she treats herself here. Yeah. On, you know, on paper and the part was written for uh, Anne Margaret uh, by William Goldman when he when he was translating his novel to the screen, uh, that's the only person that he had 
in mind was he envisioned Anne Margaret in the role. And you're right, it plays to her strengths um, beautifully. And I don't think, I think if anyone else had done it, I would say that the, um, the shallowness of the character would show more. Um, but I think she has such a, uh, she has this raw vulnerability to her. Here's a woman who is in a loveless marriage. And when, you know, this old flame from high school uh, shows back up, she's retreating from her marriage towards Corky and Corky is retreating from his show business life uh, towards her. And that sounds ideal, except they're both, you know, very, very damaged uh, uh, people. Mm-hmm. Now, in talking about Goldsman um, translating his novel and, and choosing Anne Margaret, one of my favorite aspects to this film is what could have been in a way it's that of course oh. originally when they were setting out to make the movie they had the movie set up that it was going to be directed by norman jewison and they were courting jack nicholson for uh, the lead role jack nicholson ended up dropping out because he didn't want to wear a hair piece which they demanded yep. he have for the film and then norman jewison uh ended up falling out Lawrence olivier was going to play the burgess meredith part but he got sick and had to drop out. So they ended up going to Attenborough, basically, and he was able to leverage getting the financing, like we said, for Gandhi. And when he and Goldman's, Goldsman started working together, uh, they envisioned Gene Wilder originally in the lead, but it was the yeah. producer, Levine, who told them he didn't want a comedian at all for the role. You know, I have to say, though, I mean, how incredible would it have been to see Gene Wilder in the scene near the end where Fats is is telling Corky all these commands and then he tells him to grab the knife. Can you imagine Gene Wilder twirling around on the floor on all fours and then jumping up and touching the ceiling? I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked. It it <laughs> it wouldn't have, it it wouldn't have worked, but I mean Gene Wilder was a fine actor, but he had such a strong comic persona that it would have been hard to get over that. I mean, this was, this was one of Hopkins first, uh, American, uh, films. He was, he was primarily known as a British actor and a well-respected, um, British actor. He was, he was, he was like the young up and coming. He was the next Richard Harris, James Mason, that he was the next of that, uh, ilk. um, so he was a little less familiar to mainstream audiences uh, over here, unless you were older. You know, I think the older people who would go and see a bridge too far, etc., <laughs> would would know him, right? So yeah. to a to a more mainstream audience, you know, uh, the year before this, I think he made Audrey Rose. Um, yes. You know, so he was less known, and so I think that plays that helps the material. I don't think. I'm not. I don't know if Nicholson would have worked anyway. I, th- I think um, he would have been too overly manic too much of the time. Whereas what makes Hopkins' role work so well is because he's able to jump between basically the three three stages of the kind of straight, even keel, sometimes a little bit quiet, corky, fat, and then the manic corky. And you have to have those be extremely defined and if you have nicholson 
it would almost be kind of like you mentioned with Gene Wilder. It would almost become too much of a caricature as opposed to a character. Yeah, it would be too distracting. Like you said, Nicholson, I don't think um, by that point in his career had that kind of introvert. He couldn't do the introvert part of uh, Corky. That is essential to getting us to on his side and getting and, and evoking our sympathy. Right. It yeah. just wouldn't it wouldn't be there. It would be he would start at a certain level and then it would go, you know, further. Um, so, yeah, I thought Hopkins, all the stars lined up. I mean, look at. Burgess Meredith. Oh, um, God. When, now, when he shows up to that cabin. That's one of that. Uh, this is honest to God's truth, Adrian. That is one of my favorite scenes from any movie from the 70s. <laughs> oh, I could I watch that scene. I could watch that scene on a loop. It's just it's just so it's so good because they're they're each being it's very few times that you have a scene like that where both actors are able to shine. It's usually one person's going to overpower the other, but Anthony Hopkins gets to play the manic. I'm trying to play at cool level. And then you just have the immense sincerity from Burgess Meredith and just standing at that door and, you know, just, just wanting to help take care of him. And, and you feel it and you're there in the scene and it's just, I'll stop gushing about that scene. It's your job to gush here. No, 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 no. It's let's gush together. That scene <laughs> is phenomenal. The way it's written and laid out and and acted, everything. It's a five-minute scene of, like you said, it's two people feeling each other out. Corky's yeah. trying to feel out Ben. Uh, he's trying to play it cool. He's trying to play it cool and not... And not show the manic side that's so evident <laughs> from the second that Ben walks in the cabin. And Ben, as you said, is 100% there not to harm Corky, mm-hmm. not to chastise him. He's there to help him. Yeah. He already knows he's gone. He already knows. He suspected it before. Now he's positive. Yeah. And, and as any friend would do, he says... I'll give you the opportunity to prove me wrong. Please oh, God. prove me wrong. Like, no. I, I want you to be well. Yeah. I want this to work out. But unless you get well, you know, you're going to end up killing someone or hurting yourself. And it's heartbreaking at when, the, when he stops the clock and, and Corky doesn't make it. Mm-hmm. And the look on Ben's face is just he's broken. Yep. And, and the, the, the sad thing, and this is a movie that's not very long. It's with credits beginning to end an hour and 47 minutes. The scene that we are describing in real time has three minutes of almost silence that elapse. And you wouldn't get that nowadays in a film. Just letting that play scene out or play out and having Anthony Hopkins ask him how much time's gone by. No, no, you wouldn't. And right in in real time, you wouldn't get that nowadays. And it's, it's, it's why how long now, how long now minute 40 (laughs) it's, and there was someone when I had posted that on Twitter that I was watching it, someone had said that that scene was very suspenseful, but I didn't find the scene 
um, suspenseful at all. I found it incredibly sad mm-hmm. um, because it's you're looking at someone's belief in someone completely being crushed. And it's all there on on Ben Green's face. Um, it's like he's lost a son is what it, it feels like. And and so I didn't find it uh, that I didn't find that moment suspenseful. I find that I find that minute that three and a half minutes is just exquisite, heart wrenching drama. Yes, and that's that's the the main focus of the film is, and it's a movie like this is going to come under a lot of scrutiny if you say horror. And the issue that I have with that that I've been having with a lot of people in general is that horror is a larger pool than most people are willing to make it be. And that this movie is psychological horror. You don't have to say psychological thriller just to try to push it off and make it more accessible to people. This is a horror film, but it's in the psychological aspect. It's a horror film with a focus on drama. Just because it doesn't have a lot of killings when that's what you're going in and expecting it's it's better than that i mean you basically have three people who die in the movie and that's perfectly fine yeah no it's it's very much in the same cat i put it in the same kind of category as um as psycho Mm -hmm. uh it's you know considerably less lurid but it's the same basic idea it's watching one man trying to keep a grasp on on his reality and and we get to watch it slip away and so you know it is horror it's horror of the mind and that's just as valid of horror as anything that manifests itself uh, physically through any of the numerous tropes and this certainly plays out um you know it was interesting to see richard Attenborough get his you know his hands a little bloody because there's uh, that's not the normal kind of visceral stuff that you see in a in an earlier Richard Attenborough movie, you know, because um, it really punctuates the fact uh, of how severe Corky has, you know, deteriorated. Um, because there's, like you said, there's three deaths, um, and so when they do hit, they hit even harder because. You really don't see them coming because you don't know what Corky is going to do because he still has he is a good person and he's fighting he's fighting with all his being this urge to not be uh, controlled by or thinking he's being controlled by fats. But now that leads to an interesting question, of course, because we're looking at a movie that's 40 years old. Can you think of a modern counterpart? to magic and if you can in what ways does it it, it falter compared to that original film uh you know the only one that um i mean there's certainly a lot of uh you know low budget ones that have used a similar conceit but more from the supernatural angle you know the doll you know, you look at your your child's plays, etc., from a supernatural angle. As far as psychological goes, I honestly, off the top of my head, since um, Magic, I can't 
think of any. Maybe there are a couple. Can you think of any? I would think of some before. Well, I mean, you know. to, yeah, before they definitely had that. Since it's not something that they really go into, because like you said, they, they lean upon the supernatural. Anything that's been nowadays, like, it's Annabelle. Or, or, or even, dead silence. Yeah, and that's a completely different type where they're doing everything to be for for shock value. Um, I guess the one that straddles the line, if you go to the the nineties, I believe it was the beginning of the nineties, would be uh, Pin. Oh, late eighties. Yeah. Late eighties. Late. I think that was eighty eight. Um, yeah. No, see, that's great too, and that's cut from the same, and that's very much cut from the same cloth. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But but that's uh, it. I mean, you can't. It's not yeah. really an avenue that that people go down because they like we both agreed. Dead silence is like the closest one that you can think of with like ventriloquist, but that's played very much in the in the James Wan Lee Winnell. We we have to be super big. I love those guys, and that movie does has plenty of fun beats, but it's a movie that's going way over the top as opposed to the more grounded in reality aspects of this film. Yeah, Pin Pin I haven't seen in uh in quite some time, but I remember it uh yeah, very much cut from the same cloth, completely psychological. Uh and and it plays with the with the psychology of the viewer as well because mm-hmm. you're left you're constantly wondering well, maybe there is something <laughs> supernatural going on. And I love when filmmakers, you know, can toy with an audience like that. And it's done in magic, too, even though we're, you know, we're pretty much certain this is all in, you know, Corky's mind. But a- Attenborough still plays up certain scenes where you'll see fats sitting in the foreground or the background and you could swear to God that you see him move. Uh, and you then know? They, they have the one shot where it yeah. actually happens, and you don't they know. They left it in. Yeah. You don't know if – is that just something that Corky's imagining, or or what is it? Because one of the interesting things, and of course, it's we're, we're not going to give it much credence, but there's not a lot of people who talked about it. But a couple people have mentioned it in reviews over the years, is the – um, weird falsetto that Anne Margaret goes into at the very end of the movie. Oh, yeah. And it, I read it kind of in a different way, even though she doesn't know that that he's dead. There's a chance that she she could know he's dead, and the whole thing is it's not so much like it's a possession or something like that, but it's the fact that people people who are lonely and essentially broken once they hit that breaking point. It kind of fractures and splinters their psyche in a way, and it's the only way for them to cope. So it makes sense if she does that because that's basically what happened to to Corky. So, yeah, no, it's a very it's a very ambiguous uh, ending, and I I actually love that because you know in a situation like this things get messy, and why should it be all neat and tidy? Yeah. Um, we don't know how Peggy's going to end up. You know, chances are she sees his body, she calls an ambulance, and, you know, she leaves. Well, I was going to say she leaves Duke, but 
that's there's not much to leave at that point um, <laughs> unless unless she's so psychologically broken that she just sits in that cabin for the rest of her life waiting for duke to come back and oh, yeah, that's, there you go that's her sad story it could be like psycho five she could uh, set up duke uh up in the 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 the, the second floor just just no no let's not <laughs> A discussion no, of it, all the bad psycho sequels is, is for another episode. No, it could vary. It there's a lot of different interpretations. I think that kind of uh, angered some people at the time when it came out as to what her motivation there was, and and that's the beautiful thing about film though is that you can project whatever you like onto there, and you know if it works for you, great. Myself, I I like that. I like that interpretation. Uh, quite beautifully because I think it ties into the whole theme of of the movie of uh, you know escaping reality and trying to find uh, a better avenue for yourself. So I think that one plays beautifully. Or it's just she's she's happy and she's mimicking you know Fats's voice. Very true. Uh, t- since you've rewatched the movie recently. Do you still feel that it's worthy of the reverence that people hold towards it, or do you think that the shine has started to fade at all? Oh, I think as long as, and I, I think as long as people like really well acted movies, really well written, tight, um, suspenseful. For this, you could sit down with this, and and watch this with Psycho, and while you know. While Richard Attenborough is certainly not uh, the visual stylist that um, that Alfred Hitchcock was, um, the material is there and the performances are there. And I think as long as people and horror fans are looking to have a good scare with really strong performances, um, I think magic will will continue to shine on. I, I completely agree with that, especially the the psycho aspect, which I do think would be a great double feature to show, especially when you're comparing something like the uh, backroom scene between Marion and um, and Norman compared to the card telepathy scene. And oh, that's Raven. another. It, you put oh. those two together. They, it starts out very normal. And with people having a conversation, and then you see that crazy side get turned. There's so many great scenes in Magic. Goldman writes great scenes. You know, he doesn't just have throwaway lines. He'll he'll set a scene, and the setting for Magic is is the way it's done. Is you better bring some really strong scenes because it's a very limited they're very limited surroundings so the movie completely relies on uh strong dialogue and exchanges between a limited you know number of characters and i think that's what really makes it stand apart from attenborough's uh other movies is that as you had said you know there's so many moving parts in an attenborough movie and they're like these David Lean, you know, D- David Lean type films that it's a joy to watch him just work with, you know, two, three, four actors. And you see what a strong, a truly strong director he is 
getting performances out of people. And it's a delight when you have dialogue and exchanges like you have between Corky and Ben and uh, Corky and Peggy and even Corky and uh, Duke, you know, have some good moments. It's it's just above the board the whole way. So verdict on this one is, of course, magic is well-deserving of the celebration that we are giving it today. So happy 40th anniversary to magic. Scott, I want to thank you for coming on and discussing this film. You were a wealth of knowledge and just you, you came prepared for the gush session. So I really appreciate that. Uh, where can the fine people find you online? Well, the fine people or otherwise uh, can find me on Twitter at phantasm two and, of course, I have my two columns, uh, Drive and Dust Offs, and it came from the tube. And you can find those over on uh, thedailydead.com. Dailydead.com, not the Daily Dead. <laughs> it's, it's okay. I've, <laughs> I've mentioned to people Horrorversary, and everybody's replied back, oh, the Horrorversary? And I'm like, no, <laughs> Horrorversary. Not, not everything needs the in front of it. And then, of course, uh, over at Daily Dead, you're also part of the podcast over there. Well, that's right. Thank you very much. Yes, we have uh, our Corpse Club podcast, which uh, drops every Friday, and you can read all about that on DailyDead.com's website, as well as uh, on Twitter, at Corpse Club. I, I had to give it a shout-out because, of course, on Twitter earlier today, you basically said that you were you were having an affair with this podcast, so <laughs> I, I had to make sure to, to give it the shout-out it deserves so they weren't mad over there, so... Well, thank you, and it was a delightful affair, I may add. Well, I, I appreciate it. Of course, you can find me on Twitter at YoAdrianTaurus. Uh, you can find everything connected to Horrorversary at, at Horrorversary, which is probably how you're finding this. Uh, we're getting the final touches on how exactly all the future episodes are going to go out, what the website's going to look like. So bear with us. We've got this on SoundCloud, and we've got the link out there now, but you're going to see uh, a big, giant way to get all the future episodes and to contact me or whoever you want to yell out about future films. So we're there. We understand. And we got this going. We we already have several other guests lined up in the next coming weeks. And the goal basically is to record enough of these so that we can put them out basically at least – every other week for the rest of the year. And if we should get more guests, then we'll have even more episodes. So once again, thank you, Scott, for coming on. It, it really means a lot. It was my pleasure, Adrian. Until next time, everybody. Try to be good to each other out there. <laughs>